2006. And the people, about a thousand of them at University Baptist Church, were gathered, nestled together, all snug in their pews, anticipating the 11 p.m. communion candlelight service, one of the richest, most beautiful services we celebrate together all year long. Candles were lit, the space was adorned, the deep greens and reds of evergreens and poinsettias adorned it. Uh, Handbells beckoned us to the hour. A chamber quartet was here and accompanied the congregation as we sang with the angels the first Noel upon that midnight clear and visited the little town of Bethlehem. It was beautiful. And then the pastor stepped up behind the pulpit and delivered the homily. And after that was completed, stepped down to the communion table joined by my colleague Rick. And we stood there and served those silver trays of bread and cup to our deacons who were dispatched to take them elements, reminding us of the body and blood of Christ out to the congregation. It was a beautiful hour. But there was a problem. I noticed the problem when I first came into the sanctuary that night, but it was too late to correct it. For some reason, the people that had set up the communion table just were thinking. I don't know why that happened. They weren't thinking. There were Instead of dispersing those stacks of silver shiny trays, some in the front of the room and some in the back like we normally did, they put all of them there. There were four stacks of 12 trays that looked like the skyline of Houston. And we managed to take those trays and give them to deacons and send them out without any incident. But then the unthinkable, the unspeakable happened. My wife had anticipated this for years. She understands my clumsiness, and she knew that one day it was going to happen. But this was the hour chosen for this. <laughs> and those deacons, they were back there, and they were supposed to have served the congregation and left those trays in the back and come up empty-handed to sit on the front pew and be served. But instead, for some reason, they all decided to keep their trays and bring them back to us. And suddenly, there were four and 20 deacons coming down the aisles each one carrying two trays coming at us at once. And Rick and I looked like a couple of Benihana chefs trying to move these things and stack them and get them back. And finally, I took one tray that was still maybe a third full of little full juice cups and turning to stack it instead, I flung it like a Frisbee into a pack of deacons. <laughs> they scattered and the tray clattered and chattered that silent night. My first thought was, could anybody out there really see who did that? I thought about just turning to my colleague Rick and going, what? You want to get away? Sometimes in ministry, for whatever reason, your own mess or the stress or the press of the crowds, the demands of it all, you just want to get away. Jesus did. In Mark 7, 24, Gospel says that Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Sometimes you just want to get away. Jesus needs a break. At the end of chapter 6 in Mark's gospel, these large crowds had pressed in on him with their needs and their demands. Mark says, they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored the boat. When they got out of the boat, people at once recognized him and rushed about the whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages or cities or farms, 
They laid the sick in marketplaces and begged him that he might touch, they might touch even the fringe of his coat. And all who touched it were healed. Then when chapter 7 opens, it is the religious authorities who are pressing on Jesus with their traditions and their legalism and their charges. They accuse him and his disciples of eating without having ritually washed their hands. And Jesus enters into debate with them about what is truly clean and what is unclean and challenges the way they have interpreted God's love and God's kingdom. Mark says, he called the crowd again and said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going in can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. His disciples heard that, but they didn't quite understand it. And so they privately pull him aside in a house and ask him to explain. They press in on him with their questions. And he, he explains it unequivocally. Jesus says, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declared all foods to be unclean, to be clean. And he said, it is what comes out of a person that defiles. It is from within, from within the human heart that evil intentions come, fornication, theft, murder, adultery, arrogance, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things are, that are evil come from within and defile. But they weren't sure about that. Jesus is pretty clear that uncleanness before God has nothing to do with those external categories that these religious officials were pressing down upon the people. It's an issue of the heart, not of the hands. It's not what we touch that make us unclean. It's not what's on the surface. It is what emerges from the heart. And so, demanding crowds, defiant religious fundamentalists, dense disciples, want to get away? Jesus did. And so, Mark 7, 24, Jesus left that place. He went to the vicinity of Tyre, he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know about it. Anyone to know about it. Seeking respite from the crowds and from these religious authorities, and I suspect from his disciples, Jesus goes 30 or 40 miles from Gennesaret up into the region of Tyre, checks into a and b puts a do not disturb sign on the door, orders out, and turns off his phone. He did not want anyone to know where he was. He wanted solitude, silence, respite for a time. Not easy to get. In fact, it proved to be impossible for Jesus. Mark adds this phrase about the reality at the end of verse 24, yet he could not keep his presence secret. People from the region of Tyre had appeared earlier in this gospel, chapter 3, verse 8. They made their way into Galilee, having heard about this rabbi and his powerful words and powerful deeds, and they had gone back home and certainly spread his reputation around so that it had preceded him to this region. And when the rumor mill worked and word got around the neighborhood that Jesus, this Jewish rabbi, was here in their vicinity, the ears of one young mother perked up really quickly because she had a need. Mark says in verses 25 and 26, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, immediately heard about him. And she came and bowed down at his feet. She checked the rumor mill. She found out where he was staying. She knocked on his door and she came in and she bowed down in front of him. 
And Mark adds, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her little daughter. You read this gospel, Mark leads you along the way with Jesus. We follow him. And one of the things that becomes clear on the journey with Jesus in this gospel story is that Jesus holds a radically different view of who is on the inside of the kingdom and who is on the outside of the kingdom. Who are insiders, who are outsiders, who is clean and who is unclean. Jesus sees that truth very differently than do the religious leaders of his world and the culture of his world, really. He thinks differently about it. He's, he's taking in tax collectors and sinners and going to their parties. He touches a woman who had had an hemorrhage for 12 years who was unclean. He took the hand of the corpse of a little girl and touched her. It's almost as if Jesus thinks that it's uncleanness doesn't flow from the unclean thing to the holy and make it unholy. It is holiness and power that flows from the holy to the unclean and makes it clean. He's got a very different way of thinking about that. He's gone to a cemetery and conversed with a demoniac in Gentile territory. Jesus thinks about uncleanness in a very, very different way. And then this story happens. This story. Jesus is approached by a Gentile woman. She requests deliverance from an unclean spirit for her little daughter. For the reader of this gospel, you get to this point, this is a gimme. This is a two-foot putt. It's a slam dunk. It is an obvious. We know what's about to happen. We know we've been with Jesus in these situations, and we know what his response is going to be. We know what he's going to say. We know what he's going to do. We know how he thinks about Gentiles and what he's done with demons. This is an easy one. Then, the narrator of the gospel throws us a knuckleball. He hits us from behind. We don't see this coming. It's a flagrant foul. We were not expecting this. Jesus rejects the request. He rejects the request. And he doesn't just reject it. He's fairly rude about it. He calls the woman a Gentile dog. Didn't see that coming. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Jesus... Matthew's version is a little bit different. In that story, Jesus meets the woman outdoors, and he and his disciples are all there together. They're walking along, and the woman comes up, and she begins to cry out for mercy and for help, and Jesus just ignores her. He doesn't take the call. And finally, the disciples say, would you tell this woman to go away? She's, she's bothering us. We're seeking silence and solitude. And Jesus doesn't even look at her or them. He just says, I was not sent to the nations. I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Not primarily, not first, only to the lost sheep of Israel. And he keeps walking. The woman is not to be denied. She runs and gets in front of the procession, falls down at his feet, and begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And then Jesus continues this discussion about the bread and the children and the dogs. But in Mark's account, the story takes place inside, inside a house, which is a significant setting in that gospel. Things that when Jesus is met inside the house, He's met by people who have faith in him, who trust him, and who have confidence in him. And that just sets us up as a reader a little more to expect him to respond to her. But no, she's a Gentile dog, a woman, a Syrophoenician, 
one of Israel's ancient enemies. She doesn't deserve to eat the bread that rightfully belongs to the children of God, to the Jews. Well, we finally caught Jesus on a bad day. Got up on the wrong side of the mat. All the coffee the disciples had was decaf that day. <laughs> Missed his quiet time. People got on his last nerve. I, I mean, that's what you, you what happened here? WWJT. <laughs> what was Jesus thinking? This is a tough text. Uh, one pastor said that he hated it when this passage showed up in the lectionary because he didn't want to preach it, but if he didn't, it made it seem just as awful as it sounds. And so he couldn't ignore it. I had my whole pick of the Gospel of Mark for this day. I have no idea why I selected this text. It's not one of my favorite Markan stories. But here it is, right in the middle of the book. And commentators, they just lined up to help make Jesus look better like PR agents. We're going to put some spin on this and make him look a little better here. Maybe, they suggest some, maybe he spoke gently and tenderly to her. We don't have the tone of voice here. Maybe there was a sort of twinkle in his eye that gave her a little hope of promise that he was going to do something. Maybe the fact that he used the diminutive form of dogs here, doggies, uh, was <laughs> supposed to help out soften the blow a bit. Unfortunately, the video of that event has yet to surface. And so the close-up shot of Jesus with that Gandalf-like twinkle in his eye it can't really be confirmed. It remains speculative. Perhaps, some have suggested, Jesus was testing her faith. He does that with people occasionally. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't commend her for her faith at the end of the story in Mark. There's no indication that it was that. And even if he were, how loving and kind would that be? To test her faith when she's so desperate right now for her little daughter. What if she had not responded so well? What if she had backed off after the rejection? Would he just have let her and her daughter go on in their demonic anguish interminably? How, how un-Jesus that sounds. Perhaps, some have suggested, Jesus was genuinely rejecting her at first. He's still struggling with the scope of his mission. Does it include the Gentiles yet or not? Is it right to turn to the Gentiles or not? And in a good Fred Hymian way, he changes his mind after his conversation with this woman and goes off another direction. But the problem is, you can't find that in the text either. He's already been to Gentile territory. He's already dealt with Gentiles. He's already had Syrophoenicians that he's ministered to. That doesn't really fit. Some have suggested maybe that this story is just an invention of the early church. Really. You needed to fill space for you and invent this story? <laughs> Why add a story that only makes Jesus look bad? And when you're, if you're inventing one, Make him look good. Herschel Hobbes, the legendary Baptist preacher and statesman from a previous generation, preached in our congregation when I was first there. His grandson was a member of our church and was graduating from high school. So on Senior Sunday, Herschel Hobbes was our preacher. And he preached from this story in Matthew. And I really liked his creative approach to that. He suggested that Jesus was not testing the woman's faith. He was testing his disciples and how much they understood of the kingdom at this point. He was intentionally taking on their perspective and their culture's perspective and acting it out, living it out in front of them, waiting for them to call him on it, to see if they understood yet. 
Maybe Hobbes is right. It's possible Jesus was testing them rather than the woman, just deliberately delaying the gift of grace long enough to see if the disciples understood yet that his grace was wide like the ocean and included Gentiles as well as Jews. And so at first he, in Matthew, he simply ignores her request, doesn't respond to it at all. And the disciples don't, they they go with that. They say, get rid of her. And Jesus turns to them and says, I'm only sent to the house of Israel. Uh, You're the privileged ones. We Jews are the privileged ones. You're right. Let's just send her away. And he watches them, those disciples. What will they do? Well, they say, Master, what about all the Gentiles you've already ministered to? What about your inaugural sermon? What about what you said when you healed the servant of the centurion? Manny will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Is she not one of these? Will one of those disciples pipe up and say that? Will anyone intercede on her behalf? Will anyone express the compassion of God to this woman? On behalf of a life that's been tormented by the evil one? Nobody takes up her cause. No one challenges him. They all nod their heads. This is right. Only Israel. Everyone but the woman. The woman runs and gets in front of the procession and stops and begins to beg again and again. She will not leave. Her daughter's screams still echo in her head. And Jesus is the source of healing for her and for her daughter and for her life. And even though the disciples' theology and culture say that she is to be shunned and rejected, she will have none of it. Though Jesus himself seems to have expressed that view personally. And so in Matthew's story, she runs and says, please have mercy on me. And then Jesus offers the final insult to her in that story. He speaks, but... This time, maybe his eyes are searching the eyes of the disciples as he speaks. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Jesus does there, according to Hobbes, he, he expresses the ugliness of their thoughts right in front of this woman, making it even more intense. He voices the hearts of his disciples and of their culture. Their hearts, that place he has just said is the source of everything unclean. Will someone please speak up for her? Will someone take her side? Will someone have compassion on her? Please. No, not today. Maybe another day, maybe another test, but not today. And that's when Jesus finally relents in that story. He turns to the woman, sort of pulls off his pharisaical mask he's been wearing and speaks kindly to her. The test is over. F minus for the 12, the apparent insiders. A plus for the Syrophoenician woman, the ultimate outsider. And she speaks one more time. And she says, sir, I'm not going anywhere. You have what I need. I will wait for a crumb of grace to fall and I'll be all over it. You're right, sir. I'm a dog. I don't deserve anything from the hand of God. But I'll bet a crumb hits the floor before long and it will be mine. I'll not let it go to waste. This is my little girl we're talking about. She's desperate. And Jesus responds in Matthew, woman, you have great faith. Now, that's all fine for Matthew. And like I I like to say about those kind of speculative, creative, midrashic kinds of interpretations of narrative text, if I were making a movie, that's how I'd shoot it. Who knows what really happened. But that's Matthew. How does our story work in Mark? You don't have any of those things to work with. It's not so easy to relieve Jesus of the mess he's gotten himself into by saying this. The disciples are not even mentioned in this account, which makes me think it sort of implies he wanted to get away from them too. There's only Jesus and the woman. 
Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Wait, wait, there's one disciple there. There's one who's been with Jesus from the very first. One disciple who's already convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and who has progressively become an insider as he's understood the things Jesus has taught. There's one there who has accompanied Jesus through this entire account. One disciple who will later follow him into the Garden of Gethsemane and from Gethsemane without denying him all the way into Pilate's judgment hall and from there to the cross and stay till the end when, he's, when he dies and who will witness his burial and will go to the tomb with the women on Sunday morning and be the only one expecting the tomb to be empty. There's one disciple there with Jesus that day, that disciple. And that one disciple in Mark's gospel is the reader. Perhaps that's the disciple is the one being tested here. In saying this, I'm not asking the question of what really happened or what was Jesus really thinking because any answer to those questions in this text is completely speculative because there's nothing said about Jesus' thoughts or motives or reasons for doing what he did. I'm asking another kind of question. I'm asking, bracketing those questions, asking the question of the rhetoric of the text. How does this text work? What does it do to me when I read it? In Mark, Jesus' words do not test the woman's understanding or those of the 12, but they do test mine as a reader. Maybe I'm supposed to be puzzled by them. Maybe I'm supposed to be offended by them, confused. Maybe I'm supposed to stumble over the discrepancy between what Jesus says here and all the things he's said and done before. Why the contradiction? I'm supposed to be offended. I'm supposed to be scandalized. I'm supposed to throw a flag. I'm supposed to say, wait, this isn't right. If I don't take offense, if I agree that she has no business as a Gentile woman intruding on Jesus' presence and requesting some relief for her little girl, then I've just shown that I'm closer to the Pharisees than I am to the Messiah. I'm still blind and deaf to God's ways and God's words. I'm still an outsider to the kingdom. This story, occurring where it does, that is immediately following that discussion on uncleanness, and as it does arrests me, and it interrogates me. Do you get it? Do you understand? Do you see it? Are you offended by this? Have you yet grasped what the kingdom is about? Do you see who the insiders are and who the outsiders are? Do you know who is welcome? How do you regard those who are other than you? Are they welcome at the table for the bread of the kingdom, or must they wait for scraps of grace to fall? Who are the outsiders? you and I find ourselves easily ignoring, rejecting, regarding as unworthy and as intruders. Women still get less than a full place at the table in the religious world of Baptist life. Crumbs are still more common than slices of bread. This remains true even in some traditions that appear to be more open. Are you okay with that? This test asked me. The poor, the homeless, the emotionally ill are mostly not on our radar. Mostly we who are church-going folks do not see them as we drive down the street. And if they do ever show up, they are viewed as intruders and perhaps threats. Does that bother you, this text asks? Undocumented immigrants, many of whom are working hard to care for themselves here and their families back at home while living in fear, are regularly vilified and religious and political rhetoric. How does that set with you as a kingdom citizen, the text asks. 
even among followers of Jesus. One race despises another regarding the other as some way unclean. Are you okay with that? The text wants to know. Christian Democrats and Christian Republicans identify each other as enemies of righteousness publicly. What's your take on that, the story asks. We don't have enough time, really, to inquire about the many others in our world whom professed followers of Jesus find reasons to ignore, cast aside, treat as invisible, as unclean, as defiled, barely deserving a scrap of leftovers, and certainly not a place at the table. But our terms and our labels for these others fill our sermons and our airwaves and our publications and our speeches. Gays and criminals and Muslims and liberals and conservatives and fundamentalists, the list of terms and labels goes on and on and on. I've got to admit that all that labeling and ignoring and despising really makes a kind of sense. It really makes a kind of sense in the kingdom of this world, actually. It's a kingdom that's marked by fear and by survival and by power. And so identifying the other and protecting oneself from the other, even moving to destroy the other, actually makes a kind of sense in a narrative like that. But in the narrative of the kingdom of God, it's absolutely senseless. It doesn't make sense in the light of Christ's love for us. It doesn't make sense in the light of his call for us to love our enemies as well as our neighbors. It doesn't make sense in the light of the demand that we take up his cross and follow him. It doesn't make sense in the light of his call to us to relinquish the right to judge the other and his insistence that uncleanness is something to be found in the heart, not on the surface. And so when I read this text in Mark, I think that what I'm supposed to do next is see the way Jesus alters these social and cultural and religious and political boundaries and then to keep following, to keep reading. As a reader now, I'll move from chapter 7 and follow him into chapter 8, into Decapolis, into Gentile territory. I'll cross boundaries with him to be with him as he breaks bread and feeds a multitude of Gentiles, unclean folk, just as he's fed the multitudes, the Jews in chapter 6. When I'm done reading this story, or being read by it, I'm supposed to abandon my exclusive theology, this culture that still clings to my unclean heart and reflect the grace and mercy that I see revealed in Jesus Christ. My own heart is supposed to change. That which has kept it an unclean place is to yield to that which makes it clean. The holy needs to touch this unclean place and change it. John Ortberg wrote, Father, Son, and Spirit are determined that the circle of love they share from all eternity should be ceaselessly, shamelessly inclusive. No one is left out except those who refuse to enter. Sometimes in ministry, we really do want to get away, don't we? Sometimes it's necessary. But there is no place on earth we can go to get away from those amazing, marvelous creatures formed in the image of God and for whom Christ died. And the bread of life is meant for every one of them. Pray with me.
Lord, we make available to you our hearts and the places that remain unclean and unholy, and we ask that we could be touched in those places so that we might demonstrate the wideness of your mercy and bear the bread of life to the world that you have prepared it for. In Jesus' name, amen.